and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 128. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now we've got a great Q&A episode lined up for you, and we will jump into this first question. So it says, what are your thoughts on different training intensity styles? For example, drop sets, supersets, staggered sets, cheat reps, and the other 10. Lol. (laughs) Cool. That's a good question. And essentially, there's a number of ways we can break this down. Um, Like, first, I'll kind of outline what I think are the big three components of hypertrophy or muscle gain. And number one will be mechanical tension. So that's essentially how much you're lifting. And number two would be metabolite accumulation or metabolic stress. And number three would be uh, muscle damage. So to an extent, those latter two kind of tie in with mechanical tension, but also the factor of blood flow, getting a pump is going to be worthwhile in considering the metabolite or metabolite buildup. And that's why people tout BFR style training because you get an insane pump, uh, a buildup of metabolites, but less mechanical tension mm-hmm. in something like BFR. So I think some of those training principles definitely have their place, but they shouldn't be the meat and veg of your training. Mm. So the meat and veg of your training should definitely be focusing on mechanical tension and getting stronger in a particular lift. Uh, because let's use a very, very basic analogy here, which is is very dependent on the individual. But let's say someone squats four plates. How many kilos is that? 180 kilos. Mm-hmm. How often do you see someone who can squat four plates for eight to 10 reps with good range of motion? Do they have small legs? No. (laughs) No, they most likely don't have small quads at least. And that's kind of like the biggest argument for mechanical tension. So essentially that should be your main port of call. Your training should be designed around that. And then you can add in these intensity techniques to help the latter two things. So like, uh, for example, I might use something like a drop set or even a rest pause set to later on during the session to again build up more blood flow you might potentially connect with that exercise a bit more because there's more blood flow towards that target muscle mm-hmm. um, so on and so forth uh, do you have anything to add yeah i think you put it really well in that those are your big ticket items and essentially it's about being able to track your progress over time and i guess This is the argument I've always seen with incorporating these special styles of training, particularly drop sets. Like Mm. I agree, drop sets certainly have their place for specific exercises at specific points of your program, but you shouldn't be basing your program off doing drop sets for every single set of every Mm. single exercise. Like I think that would be inappropriate. Mm. And I think a, a few reasons why people like to do that or feel like they should do it is it, it tie, for me, it ties in with why people don't take enough rest in between sets mm. is that it feels like you're working harder and then that you're accomplishing more. Unfortunately, like that might be the case that you, you, you are working harder, but that doesn't necessarily correlate to muscle gain. Yeah. And it's just really hard to track too, mm. because for example, AJ's got you incorporating a few drop sets mm. now into specific exercises. Drop sets and yeah. rest pauses, which so to you... be completely honest, I'm, it's, it's been a new experience for me. Yeah. So for example, when you're doing a drop set, how do you track your progression over time to know that you are improving week to week or sessions between sessions 
during those drop sets so that mm. they're actually contributing to something and you can be confident in that. Yeah. So it, it, the good thing is it's not actually that difficult to track. And basically what I might do, let's say I'm doing a bicep curl on the preacher curl machine. I'll essentially, it is much easier on machines than free weights, mm. but what I'll do is reduce the load by 50% after I do my normal set. And then I'll do as many reps as I can using that 50% load. And I'll usually, let's say I do two sets of 10, the second set of 10, I'll be like two sets of 10 plus 12 reps at 40 kilos, which is half of my 80 kilos of what I was doing for the main set. Um, and then I'll try and work up to 15 reps for that drop set. Once I reach 15 reps, I'll then increase the weight of that drop set. Interesting. Yeah. And that's where you call it quits after just that one decrease increment in weight. Because mm, yeah. generally when I see people do drop sets, they'll decrease it by a bit and then they'll fail. They'll decrease it by a bit, then they'll fail. And then they might even end up hopping off the machine and, you know, doing some bodyweight jump squats or something <laughs> like that off their, yeah. off their leg extension. Yeah. I, I don't do that. And okay. I, so it's literally just one drop for you. Yep. That's yep. really interesting. And I think another important point to raise is in regards to supersets, mm. because that's also a very common one. And I know there's supersets where you do the same muscle group. So you mm -hmm. might uh, do a squat and then you might jump onto the leg extension. Mm -hmm. And there's also antagonistic where you might do a squat and then to save time, you might go do some calf raises in the meantime or yeah. some uh, lateral raises, something that's quite unrelated. And I would still argue that so the, the main reason you do antagonistic supersets is purely to save time. I literally mm -hmm. can't think of any other benefit there, but I still think it's better to not do anta antagonistic supersets. Mm -hmm. Like I still think that's more conducive for getting a more effective workout. Yeah. Well, they have covered this quite a bit in the literature and, you know, Mass has done quite a few articles on it and things like that. And it's not always like straight back to back. So let's, mm -hmm. for example, say that someone was supersetting a leg extension with a leg curl. It wouldn't be like right when they finish their leg extension, they hop straight onto the leg curl and they don't even let their heart rate come down at all. Mm. It's usually like you take a minute rest, then you'll do your leg curl. Then you take another minute rest, then you might go back to your leg extension. And it is quite interesting because actually the agonist and the antagonist muscle groups sometimes they find that it actually doesn't interfere with their performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I know for me personally, with my full body training, I will superset completely different muscle groups that aren't exactly agonists and antagonists. So for example, if I'm starting off my workout with a dumbbell shoulder press and I'm only doing three sets of working in a rep range there of like six to eight, I'm taking quite a few minutes rest between my sets, mm. but in order to be efficient during my workouts, I'll usually do some calf raises in between those sets, which does not compromise my performance and my delts whatsoever. Cause it's literally on the very other end of the extremities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. So I think as a, as a recap, those intensity techniques have their place, mm -hmm. but they shouldn't be making up the most of your training. I don't think you should be doing those intensity techniques for every exercise either. Yeah. Probably if you're doing like five to six exercises in a session, maybe one to two of them would yeah. be using an intensity technique. Yeah. Just choose one. You know, mm. if you're doing a leg workout, maybe just choose to do a drop set on your leg extension. If you're doing an, an upper body workout, just choose to do a drop set on your bicep curls because if you genuinely have the energy to do drop sets on every single exercise, you have to ask yourself, 
am I training with enough intensity here? Like, why do I still have the energy left over in order to do this? Yeah. So pushing yourself harder in your working sets. And I would argue that's going to help you progress more over time for sure. But of course it does spice things up with training and makes things fun in quotation marks. And I think it's really does stem from more like personal training, you know, like mm. personal trainers, if they've got a client for half an hour or 45 minutes, they want to make the client feel like they've mm. worked, you know, and like usually people do associate getting your heart rate up and always doing something with working. So they'll probably incorporate all of these sort of things with drop sets and getting you to do wall squats and jump squats and whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that mixture of plyometrics hit combined with resistance training, mm -hmm. calorie burning. Yeah. But I've got a question for you. Do you think that people genuinely try to incorporate more of these styles of training because they think that they're just not responding to traditional methods of progressive overload and traditional training styles? And they think that they do need to try something new, shock their body in order to grow? I think partially, I think to be honest, my honest opinion is that most people are just kind of following the crowd mm -hmm. and that they've seen it on social media. They've seen other big people do it and they're like, must work. So let's, yeah. let's incorporate it. So that's, that's what I think. But mm -hmm. potentially I think people or people are always going to try and do something in the gym because it's going to give them the best results. Like you don't, you don't see someone doing something in the gym because it's going to make them smaller. Mm -hmm. So I think what you said in terms of trying to get better results does ring true. Yeah, but it is interesting along the lines of people being labeled as non-responders, particularly in the research. You know, when they take a cohort of individuals through a perhaps six to 12 week training block and then they identify, okay, who responded to this training and who didn't respond. And it's quite interesting because initially these individuals who didn't have the best outcomes were labeled as non-responders, but now they're trying to change the terminology to be either high responders or low responders, because mm -hmm. it's quite unlikely that someone's going to go through a training block and not receive any sort of benefit of any type, correct? Like they're not, it's not like they're not going to respond to anything. They're either going to have a low response or a high response. Makes sense, yeah. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that some people in these studies do and don't respond to training? Well, <laughs> yeah, that's a quite a in-depth topic. Mm -hmm. And I think genetics is undoubtedly plays a role here. Mm -hmm. Like there's absolutely no doubt about that, that there is huge genetic variation in terms of how people respond to training and how they respond to nutrition as well. So... However, we can't ignore that some people try harder than others yeah. and some people adhere better than others as well. And that, to be honest, will probably influence your results more than your genetics. Mm -hmm. You're right. There's so many different things that go into this and so many things, as we know, as coaches are going to influence whether or not someone's actually going to positively change their body composition. And mm -hmm. gosh, with these studies, I, I can just feel for the researchers. It would be really tough to just blanket statement, this person positively responded or this person negatively responded. It's tough with the research because I don't think the time frame is enough. You know, it's usually only like six to 12 weeks long. Mm -hmm. They're done in universities. So they're usually recruiting uni students 
gosh knows what uni students are really up to. (laughs) And they'll also just, they'll blanket statement certain things. They're like, we did one dietary recall with them. Everyone was eating at least 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. But like, man, how much sleep are these people getting? What's actually making up their diet? Are their dietitians involved? And again, how hard are they actually training? And you and I, right? Like how much- It's not even just about how hard, it's also like, how accurate they are, what's Mm. their movement execution like. And even in terms of the nutrition, like sure, they might be trying to hit a certain amount Mm -hmm. of protein, but we know firsthand that people can try to track things accurately, but that doesn't mean they are overly accurate. So there's so much that goes into it. But at the end of the day, like it kind of is what it is. And what sort of tangible improvements can someone really make in six weeks, Mm. six, even 12 weeks speaking on our behalf, right? Like how much can you really change your body composition in terms of laying down lean mass in six to 12 weeks? So you're saying I haven't doubled in size (laughs) since prep. (laughs) Maybe not double in size. We've both definitely grown, but I can confidently say you and I are trying to tick every single box to the highest level. Mm. So yeah, it is, it is really tough, but I, I'm, I'm along the same lines. I think that it does come down to really understanding that training is a skill and it's a skill that people need to master over years rather than just weeks, especially considering they usually try to recruit people who don't have a background in resistance training. They're like beginner trainees. They're usually Mm -hmm. not experienced at all in actually lifting weights. So they're kind of starting from the ground up and yeah, just mastering that skill of training and like actually being able to develop a mind muscle connection with an exercise, it's going to take a lot longer than six to 12 weeks. A movement like a lat pull down or an RDL, I even spoke about this today on my Instagram story about how I would argue the sky is honestly the limit for movements like that to actually master them. Like you will never be a true master because there's always something that you can improve. There's always something that you can improve. Mm, Yeah, and I've definitely, in the last eight to 10 weeks, I've definitely done that with a lot of my movements as well. Mm -hmm. Kind of just after prep, stripped it back down. I find that coming out of prep into the improvement season, like that's a perfect opportunity to still train with intensity, but really nail the fundamentals in terms of execution and Mm -hmm. then begin from there rather than towards the end of prep, it can be quite natural, unfortunately, to really, really try and hold on to numbers. And as a result of that, your form does slip slightly in particular movement. So yeah, it's a, but I've definitely seen firsthand it's in a much better position now. So yeah. And I'd say that's why those things should really be your bread and butter of training of execution and developing that proper mind muscle connection before you actually just solely start focusing on, okay, how much weight am I lifting from point A to point B? And once you actually master that skill, and again, it takes years. It doesn't just take days or weeks or months. It takes years. And I think that once people realize that and they become very proficient and just confident in a certain movement pattern, they'll realize that they can train with an adequate intensity and just get so much out of an exercise, so much out of a set and develop just such an incredible mind muscle connection and really stimulate that muscle in the most effective way possible that they don't feel the need to resort to these sort of things like doing 
extra drop sets and staggered sets and cheating their reps, whatever you may want to call it. And I know that you've been in this position because you've drastically reduced your volume from even four sets to three sets. You can get so much out of two sets that you're like, honestly, what, what extra would I gain from doing a third set here? I even do one set for a couple things now. <laughs> one set. How do you even deload one set? Do you do half a set? <laughs> I think re reduction in intensity for that. But yeah, for my lying hamstring curl, I only do one set. But I guess granted, I do two sets of uh, seated leg curl before that so, mm -hmm. and RDLs. Yeah, but I think that's the most realistic as well. For example, like an exercise like an RDL or like a lap pull down, you can't expect to just add on 2.5 kilograms to that exercise every single week. Otherwise, you'd be lifting what? over 200 kilograms on the lat pull down within a few months. Like that would just be wild. So you have to be able to progress in some other way. And it's not always even gonna be reps. It's really just gonna be how proficiently can you move through that exercise and how well can you really stretch and stimulate your lats. Mm, totally. Yeah, I've, I can't speak highly enough for really knuckling down and nailing execution. And I was thinking about the, the leg press and how people think that I've had people ask me before, like, what does a leg press work? Mm. So if your mind muscle connection is so bad that you think the leg press targets your hamstrings, most of all, then you need to change how you do leg press. If you can't feel it in your quads enough to think that your quads are the major muscle group for a leg press. Yeah. That's really interesting. And sometimes you can see it, you know, mm. like that's why we, we are so adamant about getting our clients to send us through training footage because actually being able to see how someone is exercising, it explains why they are, or they aren't developing in a certain muscle group, even if they're going through the movement pattern. So for example, you can watch someone do a Bulgarian split squat and I can see, okay, yes, they are really recruiting their glutes and they're really recruiting their quads in this exercise. Or I, you look at it and it just looks incredibly uncomfortable because they're not confident with their foot placement. They're not confident with their balance. They might just be leaning way too far forward and just trying to pick up the weight with their back. And it's almost like a one-legged deadlift sort of thing. Mm. You can see that. Or in, Good morning. Yeah, or in a lat pulldown, you can see if someone actually isn't recruiting their lats and it's really just like a shrug. They're not actually bringing the bar down to their chest. They're using a lot of arms. So you can like, you're doing the exercise, but darn, like if you just finish that last like 30%, like it would be so much more efficient and you would get such better results because mm. you're already investing in the work. You're already investing in the time. We just need to get you to do it right. And then boom, you're going to blow up. Mm, most certainly. <laughs> Hey guys, just a reminder that we offer coaching services, which you can find on our website by searching The Bodybuilding Dietitians on Google or via the show notes below. We coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. But the good news is that in most cases, it is very unlikely that someone is legitimately going to be a non-responder to resistance training across the board. And thankfully, it's very unlikely that they are going to be incapable of building muscle mass to any capacity. It might just be that they were a non-responder to a very specific style of training or a specific training program or a specific training duration. Believe it or not, 
you're probably not going to build a lot of muscle mass in a six to 12 week time period, regardless if you are a total newbie or if you're an advanced trainee and regardless of the actual training program, that's not very much time. These things take a lot of time and it takes years. So it's not necessarily that people are non-responders to building muscle mass across the board. They're probably just low responders to specific styles of training, specific training intensities, specific training volume, And obviously there's so many different things that go into whether or not you are going to be able to build muscle mass. So what's your nutrition like? Do you have a well-balanced nourishing diet? Are you in a calorie surplus or are you at least at maintenance calories? Are you consuming sufficient protein? Do you have very high levels of stress in your life? Are you sleeping adequately? There's so many different things at play here. So yeah, the good news is, is that not all hope is lost for people in most cases, unless people are unfortunately very genetically deprived of certain genes, then usually they can build muscle mass with a very specific plan tailored to them. Cool, well, that's definitely enough for this topic. What's the next question? So this one says, is there any difference in fat storage exceeding calories with proteins versus carbs versus fats? Wow, so, Another very nuanced question, and I think this was a this was a really hot topic about two or three years ago. And I remember Broderick Chavez doing quite a few podcasts on this, mm-hmm. like with Revive Stronger and a few other podcast hosts. And that's kind of the whole spiel about why people try and promote a higher carbohydrate, moderate to low fat, higher protein intake. Is that when we break down the biochemical pathways or the metabolic pathways of protein, carbs, and fats, both protein and carbohydrates, the ability for them to be converted to body fat or triglycerides is much more energy intensive compared to fat. So Mm -hmm. when you consume fat, it gets stored as fat. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you consume carbohydrates, it gets stored as glycogen, and then potentially excess glycogen has to be converted to fats and same with protein. So excess protein goes to like the amino acid pool and then that potentially, if there's even more surplus protein, it goes undergoes gluconeogenesis. Um, that's just one surplus pathway where it gets converted to glucose or carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it would have to undergo de novo lipogenesis to mm-hmm. create more body fat. Yeah. So yeah, so on average, For each macronutrient, they're going to have a different thermic effect of food. Mm. So that means the total amount of energy that it requires to break down that food, digest it, absorb it, metabolize it, let it do its thing in the body. And on average, protein has around a 30% thermic effect of food. Carbohydrates have between like seven to 10% thermic effect of food. And then dietary fat has anywhere between one to 3% of a thermic effect of food. So pretty much what that means is that if you ate 100 calories worth of pure protein, then around 30 calories of that 100 calories would just be used in digestion, absorption, and metabolizing that protein and so on for carbohydrates and fats. So yeah, if you were to exceed your total calorie intake, you're still going to absorb all of that energy. You're still gonna utilize a lot of that energy. But if you went way over your calorie targets by eating heaps of steak, rather than just 
drinking olive oil or coconut oil, Mm. then yes, you will technically store less body fat by eating higher protein sources compared to higher fat sources if calories are matched. But even then, it's... The big question is to what extent. Yeah. I I will admit, I don't know, and I don't know of any literature Mm -hmm. that goes into this, but I would say it's a very small extent. And Mm -hmm. the main reason that we do promote a high carbohydrate diet is purely for the training performance. Yeah. Like, not because we're trying to... Oh, you can eat 10% <laughs> more calories from carbohydrates. <laughs> yeah. And sure, that might be a little bit of... I guess I always use the term cherry on top. I guess mm. a cherry on top of this particular scenario. Yeah. And But it's definitely more so for keeping your glycogen stores topped up. And we know that for anaerobic training, so the training you do in the gym, carbohydrates is going to be the main energy source. Or yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. So definitely all of the benefits of eating carbohydrates and all of the food sources that carbohydrates come from far outweigh than whatever the thermic effect of food they are Mm. compared to fat. And I guess the underlying thing is, I think you need to tackle the main thing. Like if you were concerned about this, we genuinely just wouldn't recommend putting yourself into a position where you are excessively exceeding your daily caloric intake on a frequent basis Mm. yeah yeah well if you are concerned about weight gain then just reduce your rate of weight gain Mm -hmm. so again it's very multifaceted like we don't could be the question asker is asking this out of interest or because Mm -hmm. they're they want to know how to design their macros i'm not sure Mm -hmm. or potentially if someone is undergoing a diet having a semi higher protein approach, they might be able to eat a little bit more food, right? Maybe an extra, you know, few grams of protein. And that's not going to be a detriment to them losing body fat because they're Mm. just going to be burning those additional calories. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I am genuinely interested to like what extent these amounts are. And I'm Mm -hmm. I'm sure in the future they they will find a way to quite quite objectively find that out. Mm. But at this stage, I don't, there might be something out there. I just haven't. I know that the literature has definitely debunked the fact that, oh, just excess protein, you'll burn it all off and protein Mm. can't be converted into body fat. Cause I think we've seen, we've seen it funnily enough, anecdotally, like we went to a seafood buffet, uh, in 2018 after our first competition and we both ate, uh, an abundance of seafood and we know that seafood's low in fat, very high in protein. And it's almost like we just. Like we ate a lot of food. I'll, I'll go to say that we both overindulged. Yeah. Like and a I'll, I'll over- even say I was, I was quite hungry and I did purposely veer more toward the higher protein mm. foods like seafood rather than eating a whole bunch of cheese and a whole mm. bunch of cake because I was, there was lots of bread there as well. Yeah. So. But I genuinely was like, I know that I could probably get away a little bit with eating a bit more protein and it's not going to quote unquote harm me Mm. too much, but boy, did we get the seafood sweats. (laughs) Well, anyway, I was, I was saying that we, we did bounce back from that very, very quickly in terms of body composition. Like Mm. I, again, it's hard to objectively say, but like, um, and we went on a huge walk that next day. Mm. I remember I still got that photo of our of my leg veins. Dude, we were lean, man. We got we had veins popping. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, that was that was certainly very interesting. But also like protein's just super satiating too. Mm. So if you're gonna go to a buffet, like you are going to get 
full a lot sooner by eating a bunch of steak and salmon compared to if you do eat a whole bunch of bread or a whole bunch of cheese or big slices of cake. Like, because those foods are so highly palatable, you can probably eat a lot more calories from those foods than just filling yourself up with some meat. Yeah. Yeah. But the meat sweats are a real thing, man. Like, boy, we went back, we just laid on our backs. We're like, oh my God, I feel really hot right now. Mm. Hot and flustered. (laughs) Yes. Hot and flustered and full of fish. (laughs) Cool. Well, is there another question for today? There sure is. So to finish off, we've got this one that says, what are your thoughts on ready-made meal companies? For example, My Muscle Chef. Cool. So, yeah, I'm glad you clarified My Muscle Chef because when I think of ready-made meals, I think of like the things they take when they're when people in the army are on site or mm. away from base. Like, are they MREs? Like meals ready to eat, I think. Something like that. I always think of those old American TV shows where they sit down with the TV dinners. Yeah. You know, and they like the take off. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the microwave. They've got their whole tray. They sit down in front mm. of their big box little TV. <laughs> yeah. Pull off their tinfoil. That's what I think of. But mm. definitely. No, but we're talking about like meal prep companies. So yeah. things that come to mind is, yeah, My Muscle Chef, Macros, U Foods. Mm-hmm. I think those are the big ones in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. And there's quite a few little little brands and stuff like that. Another big one is Light and Easy. Mm, of course, yeah. So I, I think ultimately I, I hold these companies, most of them in high regard mm. in terms of whether you want to lose weight, whether you want to gain weight, whether you want to improve your quality of eating. In Australia, the regulation around these companies for how they prepare the food and how they freeze it is very, very stringent. Like it's there's a lot of standards that they have to uphold to. Mm-hmm. And the the major drawback for me is more so in terms of the accuracy of, of what the macros and calories are mm-hmm. on there. But in terms of quality of the food and the, the food sources, like it always includes like a, a vegetable source, like a decent source of carbohydrates, lean protein source, depending on what one you buy, of course. Uh, but if you have the money then, and you want a convenient source of food, then I'd go for it. And yeah. I think those are the big two ticket items is mm. that they're super convenient and if you can afford them. Yeah. I was also going to me- uh, mention freezer food as well. Mm. So the the freezer, what am, is it freezer food or is it frozen meals? That's it. <laughs> freezer food. <laughs> Technically, like, that's the same thing. <laughs> well, I mean, like fr- freezer food, you could think of like frozen cheese sticks or something i don't know or f- ice cream that's freezer food are you <laughs> sure you're not food focused frozen cheese no nah, I'm, I'm definitely not i'm quite full i've got sitting here with a food baby right now but yeah so the the frozen meal game has actually stepped itself up quite mm. significantly like back in the day you would you would look at like a shepherd's pie for example and it would be just one you wouldn't know what the potato was versus the meat. Like it would all be one color. Um, but nowadays, like it looks fresh, it looks appealing. Mm-hmm. They've got a good breakdown of nutritious food choices there. So I'm, I'm impressed by like what I see in my walk past the freezer aisle. Yeah, honestly, I think I'm all for it. And there's so much variety mm. now too. Like, especially for people, if they want to have like vegetarian or vegan options or mm. full-blown meat options, like I know, my muscle chef kind of speaks for itself. They've got some meals that are like stupidly high <laughs> yeah, in protein, like over 80 grams of yeah. protein. I'm like, what? Mm. <laughs> but hey, you've just pretty much hit your daily targets if you're a small person. <laughs> yeah. 
And I, there was one company, I think, I don't want to throw them under the bus, but it's one of the ones we have spoken about mm-hmm. today where there was like a little bit of, okay, this t- tastes way too good to be true. And turns out like they did a revision of the macros on their, mm-hmm. on their foods and it was significantly higher, especially in dietary fat yeah. than, than what it was listed. And that's where like the jet, the average person they can 100% lose weight using using these meal prep companies. But I think when it comes to things like comp prep, you're getting down to the the fine de- finer details, the final weeks. Even from like even from the beginning, I wouldn't really want someone to be using them. Maybe mm. maybe from 10 to 15 weeks out, I'll get someone to phase them out. Just because I think there needs to be greater accuracy and consistency. Yeah. Unless like you were going to that point of you'd get your My Muscle Chef meal or whatever, My Macros, and then you took out the chicken component and you mm. put it on the scale and be like, okay, is this actually 100 grams and so on. So you might have to go to that extra level of effort, which it's not too different compared to buying a loaf of bread and weighing your slices of bread rather than just trusting yeah, what's on the pack. They've got sauce in it, like it's cooked and... Yeah. The, the hydration component of it mm. being frozen and unfrozen yeah. and reheated. But yeah. some of these things are like really bro bodybuilding. You see mm. them, right? It's literally just steamed green beans, some white rice, and like some shards of chicken. Like yeah. <laughs> some of them are plain and simple. And that like arguably like that's really is going to be probably the most accurate. Mm. Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular informative content on both our Instagram and YouTube channel. So make sure to go over to those platforms and search The Bodybuilding Dietitians. See you there. Ah. This also makes me think about our, our awesome business idea about making TBD cream of wheat. Mm, yeah, <laughs> we need to get on that. We just need, obviously, someone to help us do that one day. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if any of you have any hookups or if you think it's a good idea, like making a cream of wheat prepackaged recipe with like mm-hmm. the protein powder the the flour we would buy like a specialty flour so that it's because like the flour you get from Woolies it, it definitely works and it's brilliant mm-hmm. but I it's not the flour I would use for cream of wheat I would use a coarser grain flour to create more of like a textured product yeah but, we would make anyway. it so perfect make it <laughs> yeah. TBD worldwide yeah cool but but I guess the, just just to wrap up that question pretty much yes it's convenient if it's gonna help someone stay on track and be adherent that's the big thing. So if it works for them and it's still a fairly nutritious meal and it gets that dietitian tick of approval, then all for it. But like Jack said, there's probably still that discrepancy of whether like a 20% discrepancy like all other foods with the macros and the calories. But I, if I was going to actually recommend anything, I would genuinely recommend light and easy because when I did my dietetics placement, I actually did a small internship with light and easy here in Queensland and they were amazing. And Mm. to the best of my knowledge, light and easy is actually the only meal prep company that actually has dietitians behind it who are actually working alongside all of the chefs and making sure that, okay, this meets the Australian dietary guidelines. This has an adequate level of micronutrients, adequate level of protein, the whole shebang and their food. It tastes amazing. They've got Mm. a huge range and especially their dinner meals. The macros are actually pretty damn good. Like they are like 30 grams. Yeah, but they're like 30 plus grams of protein. Yeah. I remember you, uh, you got given a fair few meals for free and you were eating them at UQ sport. They were so convenient and Mm. they were really good and they literally fit my macros. So yeah, light and easy 
is honestly awesome. Like, obviously you don't have, <laughs> if I think their highest calorie thing is 1800 calories. Mm. So not their meal, their meal plan. Yeah. They have their, all of their meal plans. So what I would suggest is actually just buying the single meals, which mm. you're allowed to on their website. And I would just get a whole bunch of their dinner meals, put them in the freezer. And then when you want to eat them, eat them. And the macros are pretty damn friendly because it's in line with the Australian dietary guidelines. So pretty higher on the carbohydrate end, lots of plant matter, good in protein. And then actually they're pretty much the lowest fat that I've found compared to a lot of the other meal prep companies. Like some meal prep companies, like I've got to warn my clients. I'm like, you know, if you're only eating 50 grams of fat per day, like you have to plan backwards if you're going to eat this. Cause this one meal has like 20 to 25 grams of fat mm. plus a 20% discrepancy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it does add up. That's for sure. Anyway, that's our opinion. Cool. Well, we'll finish on the last question, which is something that we learned this week. I'll let you kick this off. Oh, well, this week, unfortunately, I learned something to do with Instagram and what do you call it? Instagram analytics? Yeah, just the, the algorithm analytics, the, the know-how, the, the little The mastermind behind the app. Unfortunately, I've discovered that this past week that when I actually repost other people's stories onto my stories, it drastically drops down my views. Like I'm talking about like over a thousand less people will see my stories, even if I repost just one other person's story. Mm, It's very interesting. It's interesting and it's really unfortunate. So Mm. what I've found is that like, I've, I've just had to tell my clients like, please still tag me in all of your stories, but mainly please tag TBD, which is our business page on Instagram, because that's what we use our business page for, to repost all of those stories. But still, of course, tag me so I can definitely see it if I don't already see it on the newsfeed. But unfortunately, if I repost those to my own stories, one, significantly less people are going to see their story, but also it makes significantly less people be able to see my content as well. Hmm. But to be honest, I understand because like, People People follow you for you. Yeah, people follow you for you. And I'm in the same boat. Like if someone else is constantly reposting other people's stuff and I go onto their story and I'm like, like, I've gone through five stories here. I haven't even seen them. I'm just going to exit this. So people might obviously act in the same way too. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad we have TBD because that's the avenue we use to repost other things Mm. and we can still communicate and engage with everyone on our personal accounts but like tbd's there to to repost things uh yeah yeah. but don't let this stop you um tagging tbd in your stories oh absolutely (laughs) please definitely tag tbd it's it's very interesting with the algorithm because Mm. tbd stories they go off people watch those all the time even though it's hardly well we repost our own stuff Mm. but it's really like just a solid post yeah and I just wish they'd bring back the old algorithm where you would actually, or at least give us the option of being like, okay, I want to view things in chronological order. Mm. I don't want to view suggested posts of where I should eat next weekend. Like, just give me, give me the timeline. Yeah, Mm. I know. Gosh, bring back the old Instagram. (laughs) Back when I didn't even have it. I only got Instagram in 2015. Instagram used to be a really cool place, man. (laughs) It used to be that you could put a whole bunch of hashtags on a photo and Mm. your phone would blow up. Oh my God. You'd get like 200 likes in a minute, (laughs) just tagging things like foodie nutrition. But now there's no one really knows. I think they even said in the social dilemma, 
documentary. Nobody knows how the algorithm. Yeah, yeah, that's the whole thing. Like YouTube, Google, they they can't give out the secrets for the algorithm because then people would use it too much to their advantage. Like people know the general idea of how SEO works, which is like search engine optimization, mm-hmm. and it's a huge thing that I guess I can safely say I've kind of taken a step forward with yeah. our business, but. It's, it is complicated in order to maximize your SEO, like mm-hmm. advertising, keywords, like the, for YouTube, of course, it's the title of your video, the thumbnail. For Instagram, it's like the first line of your caption, like how many people like and comment and save and share in the first 30 minutes to an hour. Um, there's lots of things to think about. Yeah. Yeah. There's too many. Things there's too many things. Yeah. Bring back the old Instagram <laughs> where you posted something and people just saw it. Mm. Uh, anyway, but yeah, it, that kind of got me down because obviously I really want to share my client stuff on my own page, but unfortunately I, I realized like I, I can't because like I said, less people will even see their stuff. Yeah. It's really whack. Anyway, Jack, what did you learn this week? So it's not really something that I learned. It's just more so something that's come to the forefront of my mind this week. You had an epiphany. Not quite, but it's... <laughs> Thank you for the effort though. <laughs> um, it, it's in relation to weighted vests. And I think more and more people are jumping on the bandwagon of using weighted vests in a dieting phase. And the anecdotal results by people like Steve from Revive Stronger, even AJ, he did a cool dancing routine in his weighted vest in the kitchen, um, which was very nice to see. <laughs> and uh, I know he won't listen to this, um, but... Uh, it's making me think more and more about weighted vests and I definitely like if people continue to use them and get decent results like I'm very encouraged to use one for my next comp prep mm, yeah I'm really curious too yeah. I, I think we, we live the perfect lifestyle yeah like we we walk to the gym we would take it off while we train we would walk back from the gym do the rest of our steps in the vest mm-hmm. and like we don't Sure, we might go to the shops. We might go other places. Wear might, the weighted. I'm probably going to take it off when I practice posing. <laughs> very good point, yeah. But it is going to be very interesting. And like, we'll have all the data from this most recent prep to compare it to. Mm. Like, if my steps don't have to get as high, if we can keep our food higher, who knows? It's, it's going to be very, very interesting. Yeah, it's super interesting. Even Steve was saying that w- since wearing the weighted vest, he's noticed that compared to previous dieting phases, his resting heart rate hasn't mm. gone down as much. And yeah. that's something that everyone through normal metabolic adaptation will experience. But I know that my resting heart rate right now is sitting around 62 beats per minute. But in the depths of prep, like some nights when I'm asleep, my heart rate right one night dropped down to 38 beats per wow. minute. Like what the actual heck? And even during the day, you know, it's closer to like 45 beats per minute. So very low. But mm. like we spoke about on previous podcasts, if your heart is doing that many less beats every minute of every hour of every day, that adds up to a hell of a lot less calories burned. So if you can keep that heart beating higher, that is going to keep your metabolic rate in a better spot. Yeah. Especially like the subjective feeling of taking that vest off right before you train. Mm. Like it's kind of, I always used to think of how the martial art, I'm not even sure if martial artists do this, but how they would wear the ankle weights and then then before they compete, they take the weights off and then they can kick harder and faster. Mm. I'm not even sure if that's a thing, but like... We're going to feel so <laughs> light on our feet, baby. Yeah. Lightweight. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you so much for listening, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please feel free to leave us a rating and or a review on the Apple iTunes app. And if you enjoyed the episode, please, uh, you can repost it onto your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Tierra and tag TBD. We'll catch you next week.